welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are doing a mini-sode. It's a mini-sode, and I'm in the office on a Friday afternoon. The good thing, though, is that for listeners who don't keep up with the minutia of my personal life, I am now an educational technologist, which means that when I record from the office, I get to use this extremely fancy microphone. Yeah, I'm excited because it probably also makes my life a little bit easier. That's the plan. Also, there's going to be fewer sounds of children or coffee machines for you to edit out today, Joe. I don't know that I mind that all that much. (laughs) So what are we talking about today, Joe? All right. As threatened slash promised, we (laughs) are checking back in with Sex Education Season 2. And Joe, guess what? What? I watched the whole thing. Oh, ah. (laughs) if you could see my shocked face. It looks a lot like my regular face, (laughs) only with a little more shock in it. I declared bankruptcy on season one and decided to focus on season two, and I actually watched the whole thing and I quite enjoyed it. Nice. I mean, I'll admit I'm a little bit sad that you declared bankruptcy (laughs) on season one because I quite like it. But if it means that we can actually have a bit more of an informed conversation about what season two is doing, then I'm actually all for it. That's what I thought. You know, we've talked about my limited time. And uh, I took some Mm -hmm. vacation days this week to catch up on like rest because I had a really crazy January. And I used them to basically mainline sex education season two. Well, I hope that it was a worthwhile enterprise for you. I'm going to say spoiler alert off the top. I mean, A, we are going to do spoilers. So if you haven't watched all of season two, maybe pause it and come back later. Mm -hmm. But spoiler alert for my own enjoyment. I really freaking love this season. Yeah, I thought it was really, really good. It's funny because I was thinking back to our discussion of season one, which was a bonus episode we released last season, the season mm-hmm. before. It's actually quite early. It's like one of the few first minisodes that we did, I think, back in like January of last year. Yeah, super early. And uh, we, which actually, interestingly, we also recorded that at my office, but I worked at a whole different place in a whole different city then. So... One year later, everything's so different. Everything's so different. For you. <laughs> <laughs> but I just remember that I found, I, I enjoyed that episode because we talked just about, I think, episode one and maybe two. And yep. I enjoyed it, but I found it like almost off-puttingly raunchy at times. And I did yes. not feel that way about season two. I thought it had a little bit more balance, maybe. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I found mm-hmm. it a lot easier to take than season one. What I watched yes. season one. I feel like season two, the show very clearly has a good grasp on what it's doing. Not that season one really struggled with that. You know, we were watching it in a bit of a vacuum, having only seen the first episode. Mm-hmm. I do think I checked back in after I had finished the season as one of our homework updates. You did. And I ended up feeling the same, that it had found its footing and it had a better grasp of its characters and the way that the narrative should unfold. But even into season two, there was less of a focus on opening every single episode with a really raunchy sex scene. Yes. We do still get a couple. Yes. And sometimes it's still shocking and graphic, but I think overall 
the series realized that it could focus more on the character dynamics as opposed to the shock and awe of some of the teen sexuality. I actually think season two is much more interested in teen intimacy than teen mm. sexuality. That's going to be I like it. my tagline for the episode. But, Joe, should we yes. talk about our homework a little bit first? Because it's been a long time since we've checked in with listeners to tell them how recalcitrant I am. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, we realize as we've been recording some of these forecast episodes that we put such a priority on highlighting upcoming books that we haven't done the best of jobs with keeping up with the things that we've actually been reading. So moving forward with the minisodes, we are going to try to dedicate at least a couple of minutes to keeping up to date with what we've been reading. Yes. So Brenna. Yes. Do you have something that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, yes, but it's not a book. <laughs> Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, so one of the things at our Christmas Binge-a-Palooza episode that we talked about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I talked about how I was um, excited to check out High School Musical, the musical, the series. Yes, the most ridiculously titled <laughs> TV show I've ever heard of. And yet, what did you find? I've watched, I think I've watched about three episodes. I unabashedly love this show, Joe. Oh, great. Okay. Do you remember how... Glee felt in the first season before Ryan Murphy lost his fool mind. <laughs> you mean as Ryan Murphy often does? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah, when he is giving a show his full-fledged attention, it's quite good. Mm -hmm. And I can understand where the appeal... So Ryan Murphy's not involved in this no. particular show, but it has that same... Yeah, Glee is almost an apt description, right? It is. There's something about that first season of Glee and also High School Musical, the musical series, which I will always say the full title of because I love it so As much. As you should, yes. So it's very interested in these teen characters and their sort of ridiculousness, but it's not mocking them. I think one of the problems oh, with good. Glee is that the show began to mock its protagonists as it went on. I find that what's happening here is much like the first season of Glee, the characters who are being mocked are the teachers and the adults oh, in this world, <laughs> the people with the power who use it to make bizarre decisions. Like none of the teenagers, with one or two exceptions, actually want to stage a production of High School Musical. Like this is entirely being driven Hello. by a teacher who has come to work at the school where High School Musical was shot because she was once a background character in the original films and she's oh, like no. living out her fantasies right through these children exactly and so very much the figures of fun are the ridiculous adults and the teenagers are more like our every people characters hmm. and that to me was the charm of the first season of glee as well and so yes. I'm really liking, uh, so it's Tim Federley is the creator of this show. And I don't know much about him except that he wrote the cocktail recipe book, Tequila Mockingbird. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I do love a good pun, so I am here for that. <laughs> yes. And he's, he's got a, like a pretty rich theater background. He wrote the book for the musical adaptation of Tuck Everlasting, and he uh, was the choreographer on Billy Elliot the Musical. So hmm. he's got pretty good theater chops, and you can right. tell because the characters are sort of all... The, the, the kind of joy of musical theater really comes through in the show. It's just a very pleasant, fun, lighthearted series, and um, I'm really enjoying it. 
That sounds so perfect for you. Yeah, it really is. Like, I'm loving this for you. It sounds like everything that you are needing when everything else is just a bit too much. Yes. It sounds like this is going to give you what you need. This is exactly it. This is sort of why I first started reading YA before I got really into, like, contemporary dark YA. This Mm. is sort of that, scratching that itch, I would say. Yeah. The happy feeling. Happy feelings. Okay, well, my update is a book that I discovered when we were doing the research for our January 2020 forecast. So if people want to listen to me intro this and us both be very excited about it, you can go back and listen to that minisode. And what I'm talking about is Dark and Deepest Red by Anna Marie. I think I pronounced her last name Macklemore the entire episode, (laughs) and it's (laughs) Micklemore. Once again, not related to the rapper. (laughs) I just have this image in my head of Macklemore making the jump to YA, but go on. Yeah. So for folks who don't remember, this is a dual timeline. So one storyline is set in Strasbourg in 1518, and then the other storyline is set in a little bit more contemporary timeline, and it involves people going into dancing fits over red shoes. Yes. Yes. So we've got a little bit of witchcraftery. We've got some Romany people. And then we've got a dual timeline that is speaking to each other. So it's got that historical element that I've been talking a lot about lately. This sounds so up your alley. You know, as soon as I said that, I was like, "Mm," because the last few times I've been like, this is right up just alley. It's been like, oh, it's too bad it it sucks. So it's yeah, it... too bad it didn't quite deliver. <laughs> is this one fulfilling your reading needs? Hmm? So yes, Yay! it's actually pretty good. It's not perfect. It's actually quite plot light, if we're being honest. So the description is pretty much exactly what the book is, except like stretch that out to about 350 pages. There's not a ton to it. But what I did really appreciate is that even though it's not plot driven, it's very character intense. You're spending Mm. a lot of time with these people getting a sense of what their lives are like and what they are and aren't admitting to themselves. It's very much about keeping secrets, trying to repress who you really are, and acknowledging your links to your ancestors, your cultural heritage, you know, your ties to history, and the negative impacts that arise when you aren't true to who you really are. Sounds really rich and layered. So I will say, I'm going to encourage you to check this out and any listeners who are big into more lyrically kind of written YA, because it's very evocative. Like the text is very rich. It's not dense, but it sometimes borders on, it's got touches of magical realism, but it definitely feels almost lyrical like a poem. Oh. Yeah. The other really fun thing is that it's secretly loaded with a bunch of queer content, which I didn't realize going in. Love this. Okay. Yeah. So the main character back in the 1518 timeline, I'm not really doing a big reveal, but it's a teenage girl. She lives with her aunt. They're all Romany, but they have to be secret about it because this is the time when those people are on the move because they keep getting kicked out after being blamed for any kind of witchcraft or nonsense that's going on. 
so she lives with her aunt and they do things for people on the side but obviously they can't be very upfront about it and they end up taking in a teenage boy and she falls in love with him and this is actually a trans man so part of it is that she has to keep secret her cultural heritage but then she also has to keep secret her affection for this boy because at this time obviously being trans was not acceptable and she doesn't want the people of the town to find out about his true nature like he presents as a boy but has to bind his chest because obviously there isn't surgeries or hormones at this time and it adds a really rich layer to a book that is already rich with layers and Mm -hmm. i really appreciated that i think it just adds something like a very visible tangible difference to some of the other ya books that i've read as a result that's awesome that sounds like it's actually sort of delivering something new and necessary to the category Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I won't lie, having it be an unexpected piece to that, like it's it's really not addressed when you read the description of the book. It was very pleasurable as a queer reader to be like, hey, this is even more up my alley as a result. Love it. Yeah. Okay, well, shall we dig into Sex Education Season 2 then? Yes, please. Good morning, Mordale. Today, we shall be hearing from a sexual health expert. Here to start an open conversation about SEX. Didn't you wank off a courgette? It's a new term. No more clinic, no more drama. You can't give it up. Everyone's got chlamydia. I read that I should rub bleach on my vagina. Is that true? I can't do dirty talk. My cum tastes like kimchi. Maeve has moved on, and so have I. Then we love to be loved in the rush. Please, sir! If you let me back in, I won't tell everyone that your school is full of cheats. He's from France. I think I just had a very small orgasm. I was wondering if you'd like to go out with me. I think I'm ready. You sure? We are going to have sex. I'm sorry. You finally get a girlfriend and she's basically your sister. So this came out back in January. And of course, the entire season, as per the Netflix model, dropped all at once. So we've got eight episodes to talk about. And worth noting is that season two actually has a better Rotten Tomato rating than season one. So season one had 91% fresh. Season two improved on that by a full 6% to come in at 97% fresh. It's better on Metacritic too. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. 79 to 82. So I don't think we are the only people who feel like it found its feet. Which is genuinely surprising because this, to me, is a series that could have actually gone off the rails oh, in yes. season two very easily. Yes, I was. Uh, it's interesting how much bad season twos have primed me because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm calling it the 13 Reasons effect that I had while watching this. <laughs> Some people just call it the sophomore slump, but yeah, sure. <laughs> but it was particularly, honestly, I'm like, I'm overstating this, but I'm actually not fully overstating it. I think that I was a wee bit traumatized by 13 Reasons oh. Why Season 2. Yes, absolutely. Like, I'm not even being facetious when I say that. That 
show did irreparable damage to people, not just you, yeah. but particularly with the way that it handled its traumatic experiences in season yes. two. And we will address this oh, one day as God. a full episode. This is honestly the one text that I just, I know it's important to talk about, but I just, revisiting season two is would be a lot for me. Yes. And I realized how much it had impacted me when I was watching this because Adam Groff, who's the headmaster's son who was mm -hmm. bullying Eric and he gets kicked out of school, I guess, at the end of series one. Yes. And in series two, we meet him at military school where his father has sent him. And mm -hmm. I was fully expecting something like the oh, trauma yeah. of 13 seasons, why, 13 reasons why to happen to him either at that military school or for him to become a perpetrator after he leaves. Like, I actually found it really hard to watch him on the screen because I felt like I was being set up. And it's so unfair to the show because the show doesn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, he's obviously a very troubled boy and he's struggling with a lot. But like, mm -hmm. I am so used to, I'm going to just say American yeah. season twos of teen dramas being so freaking horrifying. Mm -hmm. Between like 13 Reasons Why, Riverdale, like over and over again, we have this Mm, it's almost like trauma becomes the stock and trade of the programming. Yes. And so I was so relieved with the way Adam Groff's character gets to sort of be redeemed in this season. Right. That like I was fully bawling in the last episode. Okay. I have so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually really happy that you brought that up because I do feel like one of the reasons season two works as well as it does is because it's actually very subversive in denying yes. your expectations of what you think is going to happen. Yes. I 100% agree with you. I absolutely thought that it was going to come down to Adam committing suicide yes. in the finale. Yes, or a school shooting. I also thought a school shooting was a possibility. And I definitely yeah. thought he was going to be the victim of sexual assault at military school. At the military academy, yeah. yeah. And spoiler alert, none of those horrible things happen. What a joy. No, but <laughs> it's interesting that the series does prime you to almost go in that direction, right? Like, there's so much ramp up in the emotional conflict. Like, no one is in a good place no. heading into the finale. No. And instead of veering into the 13 Reasons Why territory where they say, you know what, the trauma is inevitable and it's only going to get worse... Sex education realizes, you know what, levity is actually the better approach. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that it almost becomes a little too fairy tale fantasy mm -hmm. as a result, because it is giving you the happy sort of feels. Mm -hmm. Even though I would argue that the series ends on a note of uncertainty for almost all of yes, the characters, absolutely. because they're left at a place of transition, but it doesn't put them in jeopardy. No one is going to die. No. People are all at an uncertain place, but they're not necessarily in a bad place. And I really appreciated that because I needed it so badly to end on a note of hope. I'm particularly fixated on Adam's storyline here because I think the creators are doing a really careful and fascinating meditation on toxic masculinity and mm. where it starts. So Adam's father, as the headmaster, is a terrible person. Like he's oh, just... so hissable. He's he's honestly the true villain. He of is this text. because not only is he a terrible headmaster who doesn't actually care about his students in the slightest, no, but he's an awful husband and mm -hmm. uh, an awful father, and he is the only character I think who gets basically no redemption or hope no. over the course of this series. And Adam has absorbed his father's hatred for a long time but he's also absorbed his father's inability to emote and mm -hmm. what he 
gains over the course of this series, sort of slowly and then all at once in the finale, is a sense of what it means to to express your feelings, to feel and to express that. And he's got this great scene with his mom where what she really imparts to him, I was going to say imposes on him, but that's not fair, imparts to him Mm -hmm. is a sense that you have a responsibility not only to feel your feelings, but to let people know that they matter. Because what his mother has lived through is a marriage where she didn't matter, right? And she has just found her footing. And so she's able to give that as a gift to Adam, a kid who has not had a lot of gifts of that type in his life. And Mm -hmm. it's really just quite lovely to see how that intimate human connection is like a solve for a lot of what he has lived through. And like, he's not innocent, right? Like he has been a bully and he's been cruel and he's a perpetrator in so many ways. And yet there's something about the power of compassion. And you're right. There's a fairy tale element to that final scene. And I'd love to hear your thoughts more about that because one of the things we've talked about is like, why don't queer characters get to live fantasy? And why Mm -hmm. don't characters of color get to live fantasy in the way that cisgender, heteronormative white couples get to live fantasy on television all the time? Right. It's interesting. I just felt like he had been through enough by the end of series two that I was ready for him to be redeemed. I really, I struggled with this one because I don't disagree with you. I didn't want to see Adam come to any harm. I actually feel like I have such an interest in the character and I want to see more of him. I actually think that the actor Connor Swindells is doing really great understated work with this character because he's so unemotive and he's almost nonverbal for so much of this season, right? Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it's really challenging because he's been such a bad person, Mm -hmm. right? So I really appreciated that the series put in the labor to address that and not just have Otis tell Eric, you know, you can't be with this person. You can't let him off the hook for what he did to you because he bullied you so extensively, but also to have Eric then address that. Yes. That's what's so important, right? Is that Otis gives voice to that on behalf of the audience because we're Mm -hmm. literally all thinking it. And then Eric gets the agency to work through that overtly Mm -hmm. rather than it just being like yet another narrative where uh, the bad guy gets the person he wants because that's what happens, right? So there's this sense of like Eric is the one who makes a choice and maybe not the right choice, but... (laughs) So in case people don't know, the series has already been picked up for season three. Presumably, it will probably debut this time next year. Seems to be what they're doing, yeah. So I'm actually really hopeful that they're not done exploring Mm -hmm. the complicated relationship between the two of them. I don't want to come back and just have Eric and Adam be dating and trying to make it work. No. I need to see more of this conversation between the two of them because I feel like if we just see them dating, then that sweeps yes. the emotional damage that Adam has done to Eric under the rug. I agree. As opposed to just saying like, yeah, and now he forgives him because he actually has a deeper attraction to him as opposed to Raheem, the new character that was introduced as Eric's love interest this season. I think too, Adam is so has been so deeply and profoundly closeted for so long. Mm-hmm. that the show needs to deal with the ramifications of that and of his family dynamic. There's a lot for Adam to still work through. He's not 
like every other character at the end of series two, it's a hopeful position that he's in, but it's not a resolved position. Yes. Yeah. And I like the fact that we get nothing more than the handhold, the very public display yeah. of affection. Oh, and Eric's family. Eric's family. Very adorable. So adorable. <laughs> so speaking of toxic masculinity, yeah. let's shift the conversation, but keep it on that subject. What did you think of Otis's trajectory this season and how it framed his relationship with his father and his mother? I sort of live for the narrative where the kid in the divorced family stops blaming the parent who stuck around and starts being mm -hmm. mad at the parent who left. Like, yeah. it's a pretty traditional tropey why a storyline but partly because it is so necessary it seems to be a very important part of the trajectory of coming of age for kids who have had sort of ruptured family units like it's really right. typical that you, all of your rage is saved for the person who's there every day because you know that they're not going to leave right right and the person who's gone gets to be sort of this like guest star in your life which is really the role that otis's dad has played Mm -hmm. like he's excited when his dad shows up in the uk he's like oh man he's actually just here to see me no he's not his wife has left him and he's on a book tour like he's yeah. never actually just there to see otis and i love that whole episode where they try to go camping yes. because you can tell that otis is so willing to buy into his dad's bs yes but we as an audience who are so much more self-aware know implicitly that this is all yes a lie yes he is not here for you, Otis. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that it's the trajectory of Otis discovering that he is becoming an asshole and his father yeah. is an asshole and he wants to not be like his dad. I mean, that's really his emotional arc in this season. Mm -hmm. And I think it's answered a lot of questions because a lot of people from the recaps that I've read, there's a lot of criticism of Otis in season one and the way he treats Maeve and the way he sort of approaches his role in a lot of people's lives and I, and I think that he's going through a maturing process in this season yeah where he's actually trying to seek out how to be a good dude there's this beautiful irony in the fact that his dad sells these books on like how to be a man yes when oh, yes. obviously he's like the worst at it <laughs> The show is great at doing very cute, winky kind of moments. Mm -hmm. And I love in the finale. And I, I swear, people, we will not just talk about moments from the finale. It's just that it's, it's such a really good finale. <laughs> I do love the moment where his father tells him, you know, don't be like me and don't read the book. Yes. And then and he then, immediately yes. signs the book and gives it to another potentially vulnerable, at-risk yes. teenage reader. And you're just thinking... You are the worst. You are the absolute worst. Reminds me of a certain University of Toronto professor. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Clean your room, Joe. <sighs> I think that that is where this series is doing its best work, though, is around these questions of masculinity and how do young men resist some of the worst tropes of our culture to be whole human beings? Like, I actually think that's where the show is working the hardest and doing the best. 
Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating to me because this show is so unabashedly tropey when it comes mm. to its YA principles. So, like, watching him, like Otis, struggle with the relationship that his mother is having with Jakob this whole season, where, you know, he's doing that typical thing where you just dig and dig and dig to try to undermine the nature of that new relationship. Yep. And of course, it works. And of course, it's actually far more complicated than that because in truth Jean and Jakob have other things going on than simply Otis Mm -hmm. and Otis is just a teenage boy who can't see past the extent of his own figure Mm -hmm. but I do love that it feels like sex education is telling us so many of these stories that we've seen a million times and yet it's still finding new and complicated and nuanced and just really interesting ways of telling the same story yes Because even stuff like the way that Maeve's story unfolds with her mother, right? It's doing that mirroring to what's going on with Otis and his mother where Mm -hmm. they're having a combative relationship because they don't quite trust each other. But we see it play out so differently because of Maeve's socioeconomic status and obviously the introduction of an addiction Mm storyline. Yeah, and so compassionately told, I think that story is. It would be really easy for... Maeve's mother to be a real caricature and instead Mm -hmm. I find that a very empathetic story that's being told and touching and even though you know she's been a source of so much pain Maeve is rooting for her mom right and we're rooting for Mm -hmm. her mom and then when it all falls apart it's painful for everyone yeah yeah And I love, again, that this is another subversive element, or rather, it's an element that gets subverted, that we expect that at the end of the day, she will go back on drugs, and that, you know, it's all going to fall apart. And ultimately, what ends up happening is actually that Maeve overreacts because she just doesn't trust her Mm -hmm. and that's what ends up ruining the relationship. I mean, I don't have any doubt that her mother was at risk of backsliding Mm -hmm. and you know she does even confess i think as she's being taken away by social services that it was one time so we do get confirmation that she had relapsed but if this was a a north american show she would have been doing free balls in the bathroom by episode three (laughs) and it would just be this long five episode arc of Maeve. you know oh should i or shouldn't i and here she just like she pulls the plug and it's done and it's really powerful because Maeve is left wondering if she did the right thing and as an audience we don't know you know like she was so uncertain she was in a program and she was working her steps and yes she was also lying so it's like Mm -hmm. what else is Maeve supposed to do right Right. like I strongly believe what else is Maeve supposed to do and she's 17 years old and she's 17 years old (laughs) but also at the same time what if she's wrong, right? And the show doesn't give you any easy answers there. It forces you to really sit with the idea that maybe Maeve made the wrong choice. Yeah. And I love that final moment for her, right? And uh, I just love the fact that this series is willing to end on that note of uncertainty. It's so refreshing. It feels so much more mature and trusting in its mm-hmm. its unwillingness to just give you that pat resolution that a North American show would. Agreed. On all counts. I think that one of the things you and I really look for now as we've sort of matured in this category is for texts to trust their audience and sex education right. trusts its audience. Yeah. Can we talk about its capacity to make you laugh and cry yeah. at nearly the exact same time? 
because I'm not going to lie, I didn't make it through a single episode without shedding a tear. I don't think I cried every episode, but I definitely had at least one like breath catch in my throat, going to lose it kind of moment in every episode. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because the restraint that the show has around a lot of these stories and the the honesty, these reactions feel incredibly authentic, right? And so you feel for these characters, not just as fictional characters, but like as human beings, Mm -hmm. which sounds silly. And it sounds like, yeah, duh, that's what TV is trying to do. But like... (laughs) Yet so often it doesn't come together that way, (laughs) right? Exactly. Exactly. Like these characters all have so much humanity and their reactions are so honest. And that honesty is so painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that I enjoyed the most about season two, and granted, I'm willing to concede up front, part of the reason that this works is because it's a TV show and this is, you know, our nine through 16 with these characters. But I loved season two's ability to expand its universe and introduce new lovable characters that I so desperately wanted to spend more time with these people. Agreed. Like, I didn't know that I needed to spend a lot of time with Adam's mother. But then seeing her dance with Jean at a club with subtitles, because you can't hear them speak because the music is so loud. It's such a good scene. It's such a fun scene. And like, again, this woman's arc is not new or fresh. No. We've seen the storyline where somebody blossoms under the threat of imposing singledom Mm -hmm. because they realize that they can actually be true to what they want for the first time in forever. And yet there's something so great about it. The expansion of the world to include more time with Lily, more time with Ola, like all of these characters, Mm -hmm. I really cherished the individual moments that I got with them. I loved how queer season two started to get. Yeah. And I appreciate that there's probably a bunch of people who are just really tired of hearing me talk about it, but I'm not going to lie. I crave representation on my media and to see a fat black girl who's super smart befriend Jackson this season and to see his lesbian mother have a breakdown because he actually said out loud her biggest concern is that she's not really his mother these scenes kill me these characters kill me yeah they're so critically well done right it's not even just representation it's like an effortless i'm sure i know that it's not effortless but as a viewer it feels effortless it feels like this world just effortlessly reflects real life Mm-hmm. And like the characters are queer and they're in interracial relationships and they're all different body types and they have mm-hmm. different physical strengths and they have disabilities. And sometimes those are issues because sometimes those are issues in life, but those aren't the only issues or the only storylines that those characters get to have. And that's, I think, what makes it such a powerful representational story, right? Yeah. So the character I think that I most grew to appreciate is the character of Viv, who is a member of the quiz team that Maeve is on, and who also ends up befriending Jackson after he self-harms so that he can get out of the high pressure of competing on the swim team. And he ends up realizing that he's actually not very good at a lot of other things, so he needs her to tutor him. You know, like, it's the classic YA storyline of two opposites who shouldn't be interacting, and they end up pledging to help each other out so that they can both benefit from each other's strengths. Like, a tale as freaking old as time. Yep. 
And yet, the presence of this slightly socially awkward, fat black girl who is also unapologetically confident in her own capacity, who is so warm, who is so giving, who is everything except a token stereotype, which is exactly what she would be if she was a supporting character, again, on a North American teen show. Like, I can't believe how well the show introduced this character, seamlessly put her into these different storylines, and then just allowed her to blossom as a character. It's so refreshing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree completely. A hundred, hundred percent. I felt the same way about, and I can't remember his name because you know that I'm the worst at names, but the neighbor who gets introduced for Maeve. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the character of Isaac, I'm really, I really came to like is not the right word because i don't no. love the choice he makes at the end of the last episode yeah, um, <laughs> but he's it's a dynamic character right yes. because when season two begins and you're introduced to some of these new characters it's like okay so we're addressing the lack of black characters in the first season and we're also addressing the lack of disabled characters so Immediately, I was up on guard because I was so afraid that the show was going to introduce tokenism. And then, yeah, so we talked about Viv. So tell me about Isaac. Well, I learned something interesting about the casting process for Isaac. So the creators wanted to introduce a disabled character. They wanted to be representing, particularly they wanted to represent what disability looks like for poor people. Right. So he, Isaac is introduced as a neighbor of Maeve's. He lives on his own with his older brother, who is his carer. And they have been in the foster system their whole lives. And they've basically mm -hmm. just aged out of the foster system. So they live in this trailer park next door to Maeve. They're constantly stealing other people's propane. <laughs> yes, they are. That's what they do. And I really, I liked... A lot of things about that character, most importantly, the complexity, the fact that he is in some ways a quite villainous character at the end, depending mm -hmm. on whose side you're on in a particular love triangle. But when they cast that role, they knew they wanted a disabled character. They knew they wanted to explore disability and poverty, but they had a casting process where they didn't specify the disability. So I guess in the original script, he was a double amputee, oh, but really? they opened it up to actually the disability theater community in the UK. Oh, fantastic. And they were just like, audition. If you're in between this age and you're male, audition. Right. That's as far as they went. That's as far as they went. And they were open about being completely willing to rewrite the role as necessary to accommodate whatever disability. They just wanted an actually disabled actor to play this right. disabled character. But other than that, they were open. And I think that is telling of the care with which these issues of representation are handled in this series. Mm -hmm. it's not tokenism he's not just filling a box and he's so complicated right like you want to love him in some scenes and in other scenes you're like oh don't do that like that's oh, super yeah. controlling and weird don't do that right yeah he's near machiavellian in his scheming to get what he wants and he's super entitled like he uses the disability as a way to skirt out of things and to get his way totally and yet at the same time those scenes where he's talking to Maeve about so, the foster system yeah. and his relationship to his parents and, he's and how they treated him. charming and funny and charismatic, right? Yeah, it's everything that you want in a character. I don't want to see a disabled character who is presented as a freaking saint nope. just because he's in a wheelchair. I want to see a fully fleshed out three-dimensional person, and that's what we're getting in this character. Yeah, I was really quite impressed by his 
by him just in general. Like I thought his line delivery was like letter perfect across the board. Mm-hmm. And I just really enjoyed it. Great him. chemistry with Maeve. Yes, really good chemistry with Maeve. And a really interesting arc for Maeve too, as part of her getting over Otis, but also her confronting her continuing feelings for Otis, but also the idea that she can be desired by someone else and mm-hmm. not just used physically. Like all of that is really powerful and important for Maeve. Yeah. Yeah, I just think Isaac is a fantastic character, even if sometimes I wanted to reach through the screen and slap him. Oh, yeah, 100%. (laughs) Actually, I love this because I just re-listened to our first episode on sex education, and you were disinterested in Maeve because you felt that you knew exactly where her storyline was going to go. Yeah, I know. I like her so much more than now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll confess, and I think I said this when I addressed the end of season one, which is that I think Eric has also grown and become increasingly complex and more interesting yes. as well. Like really all of the characters have. Even, you know, a throwaway character like Lily, who is introduced as one of Otis's clients and she just has a bit of a unusual fetish. And all of a sudden throughout season two, she becomes a sexually desirable partner. Yeah. She becomes interested in theater. You know, there's just so much love and tenderness that these characters are given and handled with that I find it really difficult to not enjoy, like, I'm so used to not liking a storyline or being like, oh, crap, this episode's going to focus more on this character and I don't really care for them. Mm -hmm. I don't have that with the show. I like and value all of these characters. Except for Headmaster Graf. Yeah, I mean, it helps to have a villain that you can hiss at a little bit. Okay, well, do you have any other thoughts on Sex Education Season 2? I do not. I do not. I just really enjoyed it. Okay. I was going to ask if you want to play YA Bingo with it. I kind of do. I was actually going to ask you that as well. Yay, okay. (laughs) Okay, let me pull up the card. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Of course, I didn't actually have it ready. (laughs) All right, why don't you go first? Okay, so I still think we have to acknowledge that anytime you put Gillian Anderson in anything, you are stunt casting. (laughs) <laughs> fair i would allow it <laughs> love triangle for sure mm-hmm. obviously sexual awakening yeah yeah i mean as always obviously queer secondary characters mm-hmm. otis is growing on me but he is at his core a mediocre white boy oh my gosh the very definition of <laughs> um i gotta give it to perfect date for that scene on the stage Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think even if you want to dial it back to early in the season where you get that incredibly awkward and yet very romantically endearing carousel ride between yes. Eric and Raheem. That's very cute. Yeah. And then musicality for the school musical, which is phenomenal. Yes. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that interpretation of Shakespeare, <laughs> Brenna? Just that it is so exactly what a very nerdy theater kid would come up with as her unique interpretation of Shakespeare. So good. Very true. I will confess I didn't love the editing around that entire sequence. So the cutting back to Adam running, I mean, I know that it had to give a sense of urgency, like will he make it before the play ends? But it really, I don't know, it didn't quite work for me. That's fair. I can see that. Yeah. Can we say unlikely friendships for Viv and Jackson? I think we have to, because that is a great relationship. Yes. 
Of course, because of that musical, we do have some allusions to classic literature in the form of Romeo and Juliet. Yep. Do we have any acerbic wit, you think? It's interesting because I would not describe any of the characters as acerbically witty, but Mm -hmm. I would describe the show and the way it winks at the audience, like moments like we talked about with his dad in the book. Mm -hmm. I find those moments acerbically witty. So, yes? Yes. Any other... We could maybe make a case for gaslighting if only You're just trying to make a line. Yes, admittedly. (laughs) But mostly because of the way that Otis's father treats him. Yeah, that's true. I guess the other option would be to call that, like, abuse. (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, And to be honest, I think we could probably put in abuse in Mm -hmm. multiple formats, particularly the way Headmaster Groff treats Adam. (gasps) So terrible. So bad. Okay, so we'll keep off gaslighting. Okay, so unfortunately not a line, but a pretty decent scorecard here. And it makes sense, right? Because just as you were saying, they play with and then subvert all the tropes of YA. So we should have a pretty full bingo card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, I guess that is sex education. Mm-hmm. Brenna, do you want to run us through the end of episode checklist? So if you want to tell us that sex education was also great, you can find (laughs) us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. And I'm on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. Shout out to uh, Dr. Kaylee Ennis on the Twitters who uh, recently used the hashtag HKHSpod to say that uh, we are her favorite teaching prep hack for her children's literature class. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Right? Uh, If you have something longer you want to send us, you can send it to HKHSpod at gmail.com. And Joe, where are we headed next week? Brenna, the time has come. We are checking in about a week after Valentine's Day and the dropping of the sequel to All the Boys I've Loved Before. Yes, I still love you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've already read the book. I'm looking forward to checking out the movie. I don't know quite how it's all going to come together, but I'm intrigued. Yes, I read the NPR review <laughs> of the movie. It said that if the first movie was about falling in love, the second movie is about trying to stay in love. Yeah, that mm-hmm. about sounds right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So yeah, uh, we will be back with a full regular, regular episode next week. And we're going to be talking about P.S. I Still Love You. Awesome. So until next time, I shall see you on the page. Yes, and I will see you on the screen. Bye. Bye.